Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast. Here's your host, Charles Sizemore. Welcome to the Banyan Edge Podcast, America's number one source for smarter, safer, more profitable investing, where we aim to bring you the very best insights from the very best minds in the business, completely filter-free. I'm your host, Charles Sizemore, and joining me today is the illustrious Mr. Mike Carr. Mike, welcome. Thank you, Charles. How are you doing? Doing well, and may we live in interesting times. Uh, you remember the 2008 meltdown, of course. It was centered around banks. It seems that we, we history is repeating itself much quicker than we would have liked. Um, it was just about uh, a week and a half ago that Silicon Valley Bank failed, followed by Signature Bank. Uh, then it spread to First Republic Bank, which is, you know, as we're recording, still alive and well, but, well, alive. I don't know if it's well. <laughs> Wall Street had to engineer a bailout uh, last week. Eleven of the biggest banks um, kind of came together and, and put in $30 billion of emergency deposits. Um, beyond that, overseas, we've seen UBS have, having to bail out Credit Suisse with the Swiss National Bank twisting their arms a little bit. Uh, you, you wrote recently, last week, you wrote that all of this is more of a Bear Stearns moment than a Lehman Brothers moment. Why don't, like, tell me what you mean by that. So everybody remembers Lehman Brothers. They're the company that failed right as the crisis accelerated there in the autumn of 2008. Everybody seems to be forgetting that Bear Stearns failed in March 2008. That was a year before the bottom. And the signal that they were going to fail came about six months before then, the summer of 2007. Bear announced that two of their hedge funds were going under, and these were subprime assets. So in the middle of 2007, we knew that there was a huge problem in the subprime mess, yet nobody took it seriously for 18 months. During that time, markets were heading lower. We're about 25% lower by the time Lehman just set the market off a cliff. And I feel like that's where we are now. Nobody's taking this as seriously as they need to. That's interesting because you do see the start of a panic. You see people perhaps starting, you see some people perhaps starting to pull their money out of banks and you know spread it around or buy T-bills or, or, or whatnot. We did see a massive collapse in the, the T-bill rates um, over, over, over the last couple of days partly because people are pulling money out of the banking system and putting it into T-bills, which is kind of forcing those rates down. That's really interesting. But I think you are right, though. We're seeing only the tip of that iceberg. If you talk to the man on the street, most are really not paying attention here. They're not making any major moves. And interestingly enough, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, said that, uh, yeah, guys, we're, we're backstopping the deposits of systematically important banks, but do not take this to mean we're going to backstop every bank. She basically telegraphed right, you know, right away, yeah, guys, your, your deposits may not actually be safe. And that didn't lead to a stampede the way I would have thought. So I think you're right. Also, well, I can't just say Wall Street, just people in general are kind of asleep at the wheel here. Yeah, and I think everybody's fixated on the impact on the financial sector, but 0% interest rates fueled the tech boom. And that's why Silicon Valley Bank was the first to go. They were a tech bank. Without 0% money, 
I don't know that Uber would have ever launched. I don't know that Dash, DoorDash would have made it because you had all of this 0% money flowing to venture capitalists who put it into these firms. And if you recall, when Uber started, prices were ridiculously low. The same with DoorDash. Um, basically, venture capitalists were losing money on each sale and making it up on volume. But it did work. <laughs> Still one of the best tenders. jokes in the history of financial markets. It is, but it was how they were managing the business back then. And it was only possible because of 0% rates. If you add a hurdle rate now, 4%, let's say, company has to earn at least 4% plus a risk premium. And, you know, Uber, DoorDash would have a hard time convincing everyone they could generate 6 7% return on capital if they have to charge the consumer the fair price from the beginning. And all of the companies that are still in the early days, early stages, they just don't have time. They're not going to be able to come out of this alive, basically. So we're going to see a huge shakeout in the tax sector. The, the burn rate, if you will, that the rate at which companies burn through their free mm -hmm. money, <laughs> or not free money now, all of a sudden, that burn rate gets a lot faster when capital is less abundant, when it's not free anymore. That means that you're right, that that window of time they have to actually turn a profit or let's be serious, not actually turn a profit, but at least get the business big enough that it looks interesting that they can at least do an IPO or sell to somebody else or, you know, just <laughs> get away from the bank funding model. All that's been massively accelerated. And it's taking more time than ever to convince consumers to pay for these conveniences. Instacart is advertising, but Instacart is very expensive. And with food at the grocery store going up, you know, let's pretend inflation comes back down to 2%. Well, groceries are about 22% higher on average than they were before the pandemic started. 2% of 122 is more than 2% of $100 for your grocery bill. So even at 2%, we're spending a lot more money than we did before the pandemic. And convenience is not going to be a factor that consumers will pay for. Yeah, not when they're struggling to pay their bills. I saw another chart um, earlier, or actually two days ago over the weekend, that showed that delinquencies on car loans is at the highest levels since the last recession. So there you go. When people are unable to pay their bills, they're really feeling the pinch from inflation. A lot of these conveniences that were nice when they were free or just you know, nominally, very nominal cost, all of a sudden, every penny counts. Now, changing okay. gears slightly. Before oh, we go move ahead. on from car loans, though, I want to point out, I saw another chart that um, the Gen Z, these are the younger people with the student loan debt that's been held in abeyance for so long. 20% of them have a car loan that is at least 20% of their take-home pay. So when student loan payments go out of pause and they have to pay them back, that car delinquency rate is going to go out of sight. And I have no, novel to idea, by the way, the idea that you that. might actually have to pay a debt you own, you owe, like, like novel idea, yeah. right? <laughs> I can't believe the banks suspended disbelief and allowed them to take out loans like that. 
Yeah, well, it's, it's it comes to you know making your quarterly profit estimate, and uh, well, you know, we'll worry about the consequences of what might happen in two years, two years from now. We're, let's just worry about making that uh, quarterly uh, earnings estimate first. So, yeah, that's that, that's how we got into the mess we are. Now, kind of back to, to banks and stress and all that good stuff. I'm actually going to put up a chart here. This shows that you know the Fed's balance sheet. We all we we've all seen the historic chart that showed the his, the Fed's balance sheet exploding mm-hmm. by about four trillion during the pandemic, and then it was sort of flatlined, and then it started to decline, at roughly you know this time last year. Right? It, it's in very slowly and steadily that, that the Fed's balance sheet has been shrinking as they've scaled back all quantitative easing and and whatnot. Interestingly enough, that went into reverse. The Fed's balance sheet is now exploding higher again. How do you interpret that? So this is really troubling, and this is going to tell us what's going on in just a matter of weeks. The Fed's balance sheet exploded, now chart shows, by $300 billion in a week. That means banks now have $300 billion more that they could lend out. And banks can lend about $9 for every dollar they have. And that's just the way fractional banking works. So they could potentially lend out $2.7 trillion. If banks don't start lending money, we are in for a steep contraction in the economy. Banks have the liquidity. If they refuse to do so, that means their balance sheets are in trouble and they're worried about consumers being in trouble. So this is the big tell. We got to watch the lending data and the lending standards because uh, the Fed panic. The Fed is prone to panic. They did. That's what this chart shows. And we've got to watch what happens here in the next month. It'll be interesting. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, the, the economist, referred to pushing on a string. When the Federal Reserve or any central bank makes credit available, they make it cheap, they make it abundant, they make it there for the taking but nobody chooses to take it and spend it because they're worried about recession. So it'll be very interesting to see how that, how that pans out. Do you think it's in, in, in case of the Fed raising rates with one hand, trying to drain liquidity out of the system to you know, tamp down inflation and all the asset bubbles, but then with the other hand, they're trying to inject liquidity right back in. So uh, if you ask me, I think this is likely a, a very big. This is a this is a recipe for inflation. For I'm sorry for uh, for volatility. No one really knows how this is going to pan out yet. So you're going to see reactions extreme either way. When it looks like it's contracting, you're going to see sell-offs. When it looks like it's expanding, you're going to see pops up. So in an environment of volatility, just higher than usual volatility. You're the guy. <laughs> I know you have a few tricks up your sleeve. So I and we were talking about this. T- t- tell me what you have planned to take advantage of that. So I want to focus on the very, very short term. And in particular, I want to do some day trading. And I know that's, you know, it's not a great idea in normal times, maybe, but it is a great idea right now because we have no idea what news is going to break overnight. So we have what I call the 946 rule. And what happens is at 946, this is an opening range breakout system. So at 946, we look at the opening range and we calculate our breakout levels. And then if prices move through those breakout levels, we have trades. And these are short-term trades. Um, 
we use it real time right now in the trade room that we have for precision profits and so far this month we have a it's about a 25 percent return on our invested capital so if you trade one contract of each of the hits 25 percent gain and that's in the first 20 days of march similar results in the preceding months so i think the 946 rule is going to be a a staple throughout this volatility for me. Yeah, and, and so just to kind of reiterate that, you, what you're saying is, okay, you know, market starts, you know, we get good news that comes out. We get, you know, let's just say inflation falls more than expected. Let's say uh, some white knight comes in and saves a bank. Stocks really pop aggressively that day. Or you have the the opposite. You have worse than expected inflation combined with you know worse than expected news command of some bank things drop. A strategy like this puts you in position to take advantage of either a strong move up or a strong move down. Yeah, so I'm saying forget about all that. Just wait until the first 15 minutes. Markets open 9:30 Eastern. Let the traders fight it out for the first 15 minutes. That'll give us our data. That's our opening range. We find the breakout levels. We trade what the market gives us that day. And like I said, that strategy works. It's really low stress. I don't have to have a directional bias. I don't care if it goes up or down. If it goes up, I buy. If it goes down, I trade that way. And then you rinse and repeat and do it again the next day. That's the beauty of it. You're not married to the position. Yeah, exactly. I also do love that. That's where that 46 comes from. It's one minute after <laughs> after 45, after things have been open for 15 minutes. So uh, I like that. Very simple. We let the opening kind of happen. We get the opening range. And then at 946, we know what to do that day. Very good. Well, Mike, where can people learn more about that? Uh, well, we're going to have a detailed overview of it uh, this week. And I think you have the website. We'll put a link down below. And if they attend there, or if they sign up for the hot list, and again, we have a website for that. So if you just sign up, we're going to send you a special report with details. And we're also going to give you access to articles with pretty much the exact rules so that you don't even have to attend if you don't want to. Oh, very good. Now, Mike, again, we'll put a put the link down below. I do think this is rather interesting that it was not long ago that we had to trade our way through a, a, a crisis in the banking sector. We're doing it yet again for the, the second time in 15 years, which is kind of mind boggling. Kind of then you had, you know, the banking sector tied to the real estate sector. It was it was kind of those two tied to the hip. This time it's it's technology tied to the hip with, with, with finance. But the results in both uh, both situations is volatility. And that's something that we can trade. That's something we can profit from. So Mike, thanks for joining me today. And um, again, we'll put that link below where people can find more about this 946 trading strategy. And we'll get through this together. So until next week, this is Charles Sizemore with the Banyan Edge.